I hope that's the same message my children will understand and not just for my daughter but for my sons too that women's bodies aren't a particular shape or size or height or you know they're so different and I want them to know that that's normal uh, because uh, it, it has to we have to feel that way like I know that I probably won't change it hugely in my lifetime, but if I can change it for them, then I think that that's a big deal. Hey, and welcome to Can I Have Another Snack podcast, where I'm asking my guests who or what they're nourishing right now and who or what is nourishing them. I'm Laura Thomas, an anti-diet registered nutritionist and author of the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. My very first guest is artist Lakshmi Hussain. Lakshmi has been drawing for as long as she can remember. As a child in London, she would lose hours after school, sketching on the counter in her dad's corner shop. But it's only since the birth of her first child that Lakshmi has turned her passion into a profession. Re-inspired by the irrepressible joy and creativity shown by her children, she picked up the pencil once again finding artwork to be a valuable means of reclaiming her own identity amid the emotional blurrings of motherhood. Her inspiration comes from the forms encountered in everyday life, from the body, the tenderness of motherhood, the natural shapes of the body as a vessel, and its evolution throughout life. Working in several different media, usually at night, Lakshmi is driven by experimentation, constantly exploring new techniques and searching for the shapes and subjects they express best. I was so thrilled that Lakshmi agreed to be on the podcast. Her depictions of early motherhood and bodies stuck together have felt so validating for me personally as I navigate the relationship with my body postpartum. They offer relief from the idealized images we see of postpartum bodies while still being so tender and beautiful. I love everything that Lakshmi has to say in this episode from just how unapologetically she loves being with her kids, to learning about her family's food cultures and her passion for food, through to our conversations about how pregnant and postpartum people are gaslit and dismissed at every turn, to how we can prepare our kids for a world that teaches them their bodies are wrong and that they don't belong. I think you're going to really love this conversation. Before we get to Lakshmi, I just wanted to let you know that you're listening to the long edit of this episode. And from October, I'll be publishing a shorter edit here in your podcast player and a special long edit for paid subscribers as a little bonus for supporting my work, alongside weekly discussion threads, my Dear Laura column, and loads of other fun perks. You can head to laurathomas.substack.com to subscribe. It's £5 a month or £50 for the year. And if that is inaccessible to you for any reason, please just email hello at laurathomasphd.co.uk for a comp subscription. Before we get to Lakshmi, I had a quick favour to ask you. If you enjoy this episode, I would really appreciate it if you could support me by rating and reviewing in your podcast player and maybe even sharing with a friend. It makes a huge difference to a new podcast. You can find a full transcript of this episode over on Substack, again at laurathomas.substack.com and I would really love it if you wanted to leave a comment over there to let us know what you thought of this conversation 
and to keep the conversation going. I'll also put some pictures of Lakshmi's incredible art in there so you can take a look at how stunning it is. Oh, and if you are listening to this in the Don't Stop My Game feed, then please don't forget to hop over and subscribe in the Can I Have Another Snack feed. Okay, here's my conversation with Lakshmi Hussain. So Lakshmi, um, we start each conversation with the same question, which is who or what are you nourishing right now? I am nourishing, actually, you know what? This summer, I nourish myself and... I also nourish my family, um, but in general, even though the kids are on summer holidays, it's more about me resetting, taking a break, taking stock of what I've been doing. The summer is generally slower for me work-wise. Um, and so I try and fill my cup. So you're kind of taking a beat from from art artist world, artist life. Yes. And stepping back into to mum life. Yeah, and life. And, you know, I think I've inherited this from my mum, but I love my children and I love being with my family so much that just being with them and doing things that make them happy and, you know, just being in that space with them, it it's what makes my summer. <laughs> And, and I really love it. And I consciously try not to work during the summer. I know it is a long break and not many people. It's quite a privileged thing to say that I could take six weeks off. But um, I do pop in and nourish my my plant babies. I've got a forest here. But I try to step away. And even though I'm physically not working, my mind never stops. So I do think it is a good time to, it's very useful for me because then I come back in the, in September and I feel reinvigorated. I have new energy. And although those ideas have not stopped working in my brain um, and I do write things down or sketch things down in a notebook, but um, I feel without it, my cycle wouldn't, wouldn't quite work so it's kind of I hear what you're saying that like you have this creative mind so you can never fully stop you you can't turn that off but it sounds as though there's something in the kind of like stepping back and just being fully immersed with your kids that almost allows you to take that step forward again in September when the kind of I I sometimes think of September as like a new year yes yes, instead of like January it's like it is like this reset moment in the year isn't it absolutely and January for me is usually one of my busiest times because it's sort of people are starting new projects people feel reinvigorated then but then they approach people then so I'm so busy that I forget that it's a new year and I all of my new year does feel like September I've never never really thought about it that before but also maybe it's also from a vain perspective but my birthday's right in the beginning of September so I feel like it's a new year new me as well and it starts with the celebrations that Virgo season energy I hear you (laughs) I'm a Leo Virgo cusp so (laughs) I feel you on that I was I was really struck by what you said which shouldn't at all be 
radical, but it kind of feels a little subversive, which is that you enjoy being with your children. <laughs> and, and I'm just, there is such, and I get it, right? Like I get it. Being a parent, being a mother is fucking hard and it's yes. relentless. And especially with the, like the lack of social support, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of childcare, like all, all of those things. And at the same time, to just hear someone sort of unapologetically say, I enjoy nourishing my kids and, and spending time with them. And it kind of, it made my mind go straight to the title of your newest, I think it's your latest, at least art drop. Is that the right, like, yes. art world lingo? I feel so out of my depth here. But it, it's it's called like glue, right? A, a couple of the pieces are, but the actual collection's called okay. Inseparable. Oh, wow. Even more, like, poignant. <laughs> um, and basically, what it is, is it's an ode to the last two years of my life. Uh, it's just over two years now, because my youngest, Eden, was born in June. And I've had two different challenges from when well several different challenges but the two that stand out the most since one my mother died and two when when my children my other children were younger we were in different locations in London we just seemed to have more hands um but my mom was the biggest hand in raising my older children and and also my dad actually but now my dad um has deteriorated due to Parkinson's that he hasn't been able to help us with childcare for at least three, four years. So that had a massive impact on our sort of, our parenthood functioning. And also we had COVID and <laughs> meant that, you know, even if someone wanted to help, they couldn't. So Eden has literally spent almost every day every working day in the studio with me unless I've had something where it really cannot have him around and you know I've been able to in the last six months to um have help from family friends but my mom would do the school pickup she would um especially when my daughter was in and out of nursery because that's kind of you know when they start with half days and that kind of thing and I was working a full-time job at the time, so it was much harder for me to just pick up and leave because you, you've got an employer to answer to. And, um, you know, my, my previous job, they were amazing, but you just can't, whereas now I can just, you know, I work around the school runs and all of that. But literally, Eden is here every day, and I wouldn't have been able to do that, do the last child without without this flexibility and that's what this collection is about like he has been stuck to me for so long and you know sometimes we love each other sometimes we are <laughs> throwing tantrums and he's not the only one throwing tantrums and you know I've just had to adapt to that kind of I've got maybe an hour some days sometimes I have four you know it's it's something that I've adapted to but for some reason, I'm really good at it. And I love him being here. And I'm really a bit anxious or sad about him shortly going to nursery and leaving me. 
<laughs> because I wonder if he is also part of the reason that I paint the way that I do and how will my mind change? How will my thoughts change? So in a way he's, he's nourished my entire process over the last couple of years. And, and so just for, for context, because people can't see you, but you're, you're in your studio right now as we're speaking. Yes. And so what you're saying is that your baby and then toddler <laughs> have been coming to, literally to your art studio with you. Yes. Every day. And you've been making, literally making art with, I, like, I can't even wash the dishes with my toddler around like I can't even piss without my toddler attached to my leg I'm not joking <laughs> I mean you know what it's made us so I didn't have this much closeness with the other two because from birth they got used to being separated from me yeah you know even if it was an hour or half a day I rem- my mum was always there you know uh, I remember when Zane was born, Zane is my eldest, um, and I had the baby blues at the two-week point, which I think is quite a normal trough. And um, I was looking at him and sobbing my eyes out, and I didn't know why. And I called my mum, and she was there in like 15 minutes, and she was like, just give me the baby, you're crying all over him. Because <laughs> that that's the issue. <laughs> you're making the baby wet (laughs) and um I just miss that but you know I don't I don't have that this time around so in some crazy way I've made it work and I'm so grateful for it but also it Mm. has been hard I'm just hearing such a like there's like there's a tension or a conflict or something that like this there's something about this particular baby because of the pandemic and because of the the loss of your mom that you know it's been harder in a lot of ways but then there's this closeness this bond that has that is sort of this I don't want to say silver lining but you you know what I mean like a a, an unexpected kind of gift that you have and and I I just this is where I'm gonna cry (laughs) you've already been crying but I, I just, I feel, and this is not at all why you do you can make your art for me to feel validated and seen, but I feel so seen in, in those pieces in particular that you were talking about in terms of, because we have, we have very little support. We've had very little support throughout the pandemic and you know, my toddler didn't start nursery until he was a bit older and even then it was like you know the part-time thing and and he was he's a very attached (laughs) baby (laughs) very attached um and there is just something about seeing your work that just felt like holding a mirror up to our experiences and just like you know the him you know literally physically being constantly attached to me to my boob um and we've just gone through I kind of felt like that was easing off but then we've just had a a spate of um 
what's it called like gastroenteritis and he has again been attached to me <laughs> like a newborn I forgot how relentless it was yeah um <laughs> but yeah there's just I, I, I don't know I wonder if you could speak a bit more to just like being a body and 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 having you know having to give so much of yourself yeah. to another body another person another you know your your child I think the only way I can describe this is when I started painting including Eden in my work my agent Georgia um, Spray who represents me as part of partnership editions she said that she she was looking at the painting she was like they're so beautiful it's like the babies are a jigsaw piece of yourself and when you paint them together it's like they fit together and that's what I'm trying to depict is I've never, not, not that I've never seen, but it's just I don't see very often artwork depicting motherhood in a realistic way, in ways that it's awkward, it's beautiful, it's glued together all the time. <laughs> and, you know, my baby was born in summer. That's like hot, sticky, sweaty, stuck to your clammy body. And... It's so, like, I say I don't swear, but it's so fucking hard. <laughs> but it's also so incredible, like, that you can do this. And if you are able to do this and you, you know, mentally and physically, you like to do it. It's just, wow, we are incredible people. Like, and I'm not just talking, like, motherhood, yes, is very, very hard, but also there are incredible other parents out there who do the same and know what it is like to struggle in this way and still really really love it like and that's why I'm unapologetic about the fact I just really really love my kids they are everything to me and you know sometimes my friends don't hear from me but it's because I'm with my kids and no one is ever gonna stand in front of them because they're incredible beings and they have so now my older kids are there they you know their minds just want to they're like they're like mops uh, like sponges they want they ask all the most ridiculous questions and sometimes I'm like I need Pete but I don't think my mind has been this stimulated by all of the things that are going on all the time in my crazy household and been so in love (laughs) That's, I mean, there's, I was just thinking about this, this narrative that is so prominent. And I think it's because it, it, it is true, or it can be true from the perspective that oftentimes women literally pay for having children. They get made redundant. They don't get promoted. They, you know, all of, all of the things. Right. There's this there's this real narrative that having a child, yeah, is a career killer. And there are, you know, there's a reality to that, you know, having to put your career on hold for maternity leave and, and all of the other things, you know, the gender pay gap and 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 all of the things. And what I've heard you say is that becoming a mother, becoming a parent was kind of a turning point in for you and your 
creativity. And this is this is not something you said in this interview, but remember I told you to talk to you before. Yeah, I heard you say that it's when you really started doing art more, right? Mm. Is that am I Yeah, but I agree with you. All of those things are very, very true. And I have ticked every single one of those boxes. Redundancy, gender pay gaps, not being promoted, the career that I thought that I wanted or that I thought that I had before I had my children all stopped. You know, it never grew anymore when I had them. And then I found jobs that weren't as fulfilling. And I always felt like if I just didn't have the kids, maybe I would have got gotten so much further but you know I don't know that and I don't know if that would have led me to where I am today but I started drawing again because I loved drawing with my eldest and then I started to remember how much I loved drawing and painting and I've done it my entire life like since I was so tiny and I just never really thought it was a job or you know a career and it was only until I had them that I felt brave enough that I've done the most the hardest thing I ever feel is I'm ever going to have to do apart from you know watching my mum die that if I can't if I can do that and I'm still here and I'm still doing it and I'm still living and breathing then why can't I be an artist which comes so naturally to me I should just be able to do that without having to worry about all of the other things. But the thing is, what I found really hard and what I feel there's no infrastructure for is if you choose to then go and get your job or your career for yourself and you have kids, it's so hard. I've worked two jobs, sometimes three jobs around the clock just so that I could start to believe that this dream that I had could become my full time and it took it took me six years with it as a passion project to then have my third child and be like I've I worked through I went back to work when he was like two months old and I brought him I was bringing him to the studio when he was three months old and you know I would work and then um every half an hour I was breastfeeding him and then I would pop him in the in the um, Moses basket and then I would work for five minutes and then start the whole thing again. And there is no support for that. Like, why is there no support if I choose to go and get my career for myself? Why, you know, unless I am going back to work full time after two weeks of having my baby, which I know some people have to do. Why, why do we have to do that? Like, it took my body <laughs> my body is still recovering and it's over two years and I, I don't understand why it's so difficult there's no finances there's no childcare. I still can't get childcare because technically I'm not entitled to it and I'm I'm not even earning I, like I want to say that I'm doing really well, but I'm not earning enough to afford childcare and mm-hmm. everything that we yeah. need yeah. as a family. Yeah, hard same. And you know, even if you're if you're freelance, it, what is it like? It's less than six hundred pounds a month, I think, for like statutory. It's like 
it's laughable how little yeah. and then when it get. gets to like when it's past the six month point it's something like it's even less isn't it it mm-hmm. was I was like did I get paid this month <laughs> It, it, yeah, all of the like, I mean, yeah, <laughs> we could we could probably go down a real political rabbit hole in terms of like the the yeah, infrastructure yeah. and and what's all all the things that that women in particular have to sacrifice that is probably just not even you know registering on the radar for most yeah. men. <laughs> Do whatever the fuck they like. Um, but so just bringing it back to Oh, there are so many like like delicious little offshoots that I want um, to to go down with you. Let's talk let's talk a little bit about bodies because that is the like the main focus of your yeah. work. And um, again, a quote that I heard you say once was that you wanted other people to see their bodies as I see mine. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember saying that, but you did. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and, and, and something else that you said was that after having a baby, you don't have time to catch up with your body. You don't, you really don't. Like things are going at lightning speed. I felt like one minute he, <laughs> the baby is like, you know, can fit in the palm of your hand. And the next minute they're like so huge. <laughs> but also I feel like the first few months as well, your body is not really yours. It's, you know, especially if you're breastfeeding as well, you're giving everything to nourish your baby. And also, I don't know if this is just, I've heard so many people say the same thing, but I'm not even, I don't, I, having had Eden at this age is not particularly young, but in, in our society now, because women are having children much later, I was treated as a very young mother and perhaps also because I've got a bit of a baby face a lot of the healthcare professionals treated me as if I was a first-time mother they just assumed that I was a first-time mother Um, and even if I would say look this is my third they didn't seem to believe me and I was constantly saying look this is normal like there was a lot of stress at the beginning of his birth because he was very very small he was in the ninth percentile but he was born he was 13 days late (laughs) so it's 41 weeks and uh, six days but obviously most babies are uh, gestation is 40 weeks and so because he was so small he was his birth weight was seven pounds but for his gestation that put him in the ninth percentile okay so once they adjusted it yeah and then obviously this is quite common in breastfeeding babies and that they lose at least 10 percent. he happened to lose 11 percent and everyone just went into meltdown I was sent to A&E and all of this crazy, crazy stuff. They were stressing me out beyond belief. Like you're not feeding him enough. You need to pump around the clock and give him the extra pump and blah, 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 blah. And I I literally spent the first two weeks just crying my eyes out because everyone was telling me I wasn't doing a great job. (laughs) And I've always had a lot of milk. I'm very um, fortunate to have had 
quite a lot of milk and I he didn't look malnourished he was feeding well and I just thought he he was fine and my instincts were telling me everything's fine and nobody believed me and so it took me much longer to recover from that like he the trauma of that was quite it was quite a lot I'm not I'm a very laid-back person but when everyone was telling me that I was wrong and I was telling everyone that I feel he's fine and, and nobody believed me it just felt so much more difficult and everyone was like you're not a third time mum I was like yes I am those are my other children I'm so sorry to hear that this was your experience but I am not at all surprised that it was you know working in this field and understanding you know the sort of rationale behind what the professionals were thinking but also be you know like very much kind of hearing what you're saying as a mother like you were like I can see my baby I can see that they are doing well I can tell that they're drinking and this is this is my you know the you know why is no one trusting my instincts why am I being gaslit left right and center and I hear it so often from parents that I've worked with where this has been you know this is something that has happened early on in their feeding experiences where they've been told to pump or where they've been told to get top up feeds with formula or you know all, you know, all of the things I've even hear, heard people being told that they need to wean their babies early all of these things that cause so much stress and so much anxiety and really what I'm hearing you say is that 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 really prolonged the the that healing process for you yes. that that really kind of like that trauma was in you and and you know continued way yeah. beyond a point that you know it might not have otherwise and I was also thinking that you know if this wasn't your third baby if this was your if this was your first child and this was happening and you hadn't had that all those experiences to draw on then what yeah you know I mean, there are so many things we don't talk about that happen to our bodies post-birth that I've only learned through having children. But nobody told me these things. Like, nobody shared this. And even when my sister-in-law was having her first baby, she was like, is this normal? Is that normal? No one's told me this. And I was just like, rather than, you know, share only the niceties and hide all of the stuff that nobody wants to talk about I was like this happened to me and this happened to me and you know there were things like with the first birth I tore and for weeks I couldn't like squat <laughs> and, and nobody says stuff like this like yeah and you know the because I chose to breastfeed all three of my kids and I persevered I had bleeding nipples I had I was leaking all the time and nobody ever says this. Nobody, like your, you know, when your boobs turn rock hard, <laughs> it's literally like I don't know. It's like concrete. Yeah, <laughs> I was I like, first time that happened to me, I was like, what is going? I thought I was going to. I, I thought something had happened, um, and I panicked. And nobody ever told me that this happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I think because everything around birth and motherhood especially like in in and parenthood especially in those early days is 
it's so hidden it's so con- concealed like yeah. you were saying like we you know we see the the cute baby all bundled up but then you don't see the mother bleeding for at least six weeks afterwards and then they're telling you okay well six weeks you can start exercising again or having sex or whatever it is and you're like what I'm bleeding yeah the whole whole thing around sex and it's like now you can have sex and I was just like uh I know for you it was six weeks ago but for me it was like two (laughs) seconds ago (laughs) there is nothing happening down there (laughs) yeah yeah oh it's it is it's so it's so messy and there's I mean for me like I'm still dealing um so my baby was born I think just a month before your last one so May 2020 and yeah so they're really similar in age and um I'm I'm still dealing with pelvic girdle pain like they were like oh yeah just as soon as as soon as the baby's born you'll be fine (laughs) two years later I'm like this is not okay I am not fine (laughs) but like the entire you know NHS trust can't figure out what to do with me so they're <laughs> just washing their hands of it um this is this is a separate podcast for a separate time but yeah sorry what were you gonna say <laughs> oh, no I was gonna say I I had really bad reflux with my eldest um and I think it's because they all had so much hair um <laughs> they were literally born like wolves all three of them um and they still had their sort of like downy fluff all over their shoulders back and um but Zane was born with shoulder length hair (laughs) um wow did it all stay in or did it fall out and it all stayed in in. in. um it got it thinned when he was about six months you know, from the sleeping and stuff like that. And then it, you know, he's got incredible hair. But um, yeah, he was born with like shoulder length hair. His sideburns are like literally down to his jaw. Mm. <laughs> um, and I had really, really bad reflux. And everyone was like, yeah, when he's born, it will go. And I've still, you know, sometimes there are foods that really trigger it. And it's mostly dairy now. And I never had a dairy issue before. And I will have really intense <laughs> reflux. And everyone just thinks that I'm sitting around belching. <laughs> it's from having my my baby. Yeah, I, I think you think that, or, or I guess at least the, the narrative is that you know, when you're pregnant, there are all these pregnancy-induced changes to your body. And and you kind of get the impression that that's, like, contained to those nine nine or whatever so months. But then nobody talks about kind of, like, the aftermath. Like, they talk about it in terms of, obviously, diet culture talks about it in terms of, like, the size and shape of your body and how you have to, like, manipulate that back. But we don't talk about, like, the, the internal changes not just I I think in terms of like I think pain is a big one things like you're talking about reflux but also I think a lot about just like the the trauma that gets stored in our bodies as well like you were talking about with breastfeeding we also had a lot of of issues with breastfeeding um Avery was in the NICU for almost two weeks when he was born and so we then had like this knock-on effect on breastfeeding and that was really awful and and that all kind of just lives with you doesn't it and absolutely we don't talk about that 
and like you know when you have other children everyone's like well you breastfed before why can't you do it again and that's not the case like every single time I had cracked nipples bleeding nipples every single time I had the milk coming in issue um and my milk took a lot of time a long time to come in like normally it'd be around seven or ten days and that's why all of my babies lost so much birth weight whereas uh, you know other mums that I've known their milk had already come in when they were pregnant they were you know they had milk I didn't and they everyone just assumes if you've done it before it's like riding a bicycle it's not <laughs> like every child is different everyone I mean even now if my kids were sweets they'd all be the complete opposite sweets none of them would even look related to each other <laughs> just a it's the only way of picking mix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, and and yeah, I think I mean I've I've only got the one kid, but I I I can't imagine how you know it's that it's that steep learning curve every single time. Breastfeeding is probably the single hardest thing that I've had to do. Not had to do. I don't have to do it. I'm fortunate <laughs> that I have a cho- had a choice which not everyone does, but it, but you know, it, it took, it took so much from me and I was, you know, privileged to have the resources to be able to yeah. get a lactation consultant because nobody in the NHS was any fucking use. Well, they were, that's not fair. There were people that were helpful, but there were equally people who were very, very unhelpful. Also, you don't have the resource, like yeah. you need more than 15 minutes with someone saying well this is what's going to happen um and I remember specifically with my second she had a she had problems latching and they were like just hold her like this and then by the time they'd gone away I was like yeah what they said yeah you're also in that fuzz of new baby so much going on so sleep deprived mentally also you change so much I had pictures and videos and I still couldn't figure it out after they left. I want to completely change topics here. Yeah. You know, something that you said off mic before we started recording was that before I approached you for this podcast, you hadn't really thought about food in relation to your work. Yes. And I'm really curious to hear what, kind of threads you're pulling on having you know well do you know what (laughs) I hadn't thought about it in relation to my work but then I was like it's so obvious that they go hand in hand because body image is related to is also so related to how much we eat and how we nourish ourselves and there is so much stigma on um you know whether we're eating the right thing or and that and then how that directly results in what you'd look like and often can be a punishable act and I think that's kind of what I've been uh, what I don't know why I never thought about it before but also the way that I was raised my parents were cooks um and it's part of who I am and often I do share on my Instagrams like when I'm on my Instagrams, how many Instagrams? Um, sorry, the Instagrams. Um, 
often I do share on Instagram when I'm having time off like Christmas or in the summer and uh, I love to cook I really love to cook and not just cook I like to bake I like to try things like that I've never tried before yesterday I picked I've got two Mirabelle plum trees in the back garden and they're really really big and every year the plums grow and they smell incredible and I never know what to do with them so I made a chili tomato jam earlier in the year and it was so good and I was thinking maybe I could adapt that for the plums because I think we don't have the correct um weather here for the plums to be like they are in France but they are quite sour quite tart so you can eat a few and I do have quite a savory palate but um you can eat a few but after a while it's just too much (laughs) but um so I thought I'd make this jam and that's kind of like how I think about things like I think about ingredients and I want to know how to cook them and also growing up my parents had I've just always been in food. Like my parents had a corner shop, very sort of London traditional corner shop where you walk in and it's all the sweets and the chocolates, you know, by the counter. And then at the back, traditionally, um, I want to say like, cause I grew up and I was born in London, you could go to the back and you could get a cup of tea Mm-hmm. um in those polystyrene sort of cups with the plastic like a builder's in. tea yeah <laughs> and you know those things are so rare now but um yeah I, it's real nostalgia for me and you know back then they were like 50p for a cup of tea <laughs> and, um, so my dad coming from my dad's from India my mom was from the Philippines and my dad thought why don't I do some sort of food thing and he had those kind of display fridges that you kind of get at the butchers or at cafe and um he stacked them up with curries and when he met my mom he kind of was he was already doing this and you know making and selling his curries but they kind of joined forces and it became their family business and my mom is an incredible was an incredible cook and you know they kind of made it sort of Filipino inspired Indian inspired they had lots and lots of curries my dad was vegetarian growing up but then they because my mum kind of convinced him to try meat (laughs) (laughs) adapted a lot so it like became very very varied um but they made incredible curries together and you used to be able to like go to the back of the shop get your cup of tea and and my mum would also make incredible sandwiches but rather than just picking up a traditional sarni and a cup of tea you could get a curry who, who would come into the shop like who were the the patrons if they were all locals it was in St John's Wood which is where I was born and um and that sounds very privileged but back then it was very much sort of like you know it was it was very sort of it didn't feel like that growing up. Now you go there and I couldn't even afford like a, a one bedroom flat there. But um, it was very sort of how I feel growing up in London. Most people, that grow, most Londoners would remember, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And yeah. It's so lovely to hear about people's 
food histories, I suppose, and and kind of what they were immersed in growing up. And I guess what I'm sitting with is is this question of, you know, what, given that you were so immersed in food, and it sounds like, I, I don't, you didn't explicitly say this, but I get the, I get the feeling that your parents are like feeders, right? Like they, they take pride and pleasure in yeah. feeding people. And I'm wondering, you know, with this all around you, what has been your relationship with your appetite? And has that changed over the years? Absolutely. I have always been a very big foodie. My mum said that when when she was pregnant, all she wanted to eat was fruit. And I think that that is quite, that is a characteristic of mine. Like I will eat every fruit under the sun and I will, I will forego dinner in, or, you know, lunch in, and happily replace that with, with a, a banquet of fruit. But um, it's just, it's just what I love. Like I, I had peaches for breakfast, but I will try every single, everything that's in the season, I, I'm there. And that's kind of like indicative of what my palate is like. I like things that are very fresh and well, I will try everything. And so, but when I was growing up, I was more like aware of things that smelled. And, and I think also like I watched a program recently coming from an Asian background, there was a lot more stigma growing up in a Western country with smells and that kind of thing with our types of food and the, the kind of cultural foods that I grew up with. And I very much grew up with a Filipino palate. My mom taught me all about our culture. We visited so often um, and I tried to still visit, but it's much harder to get there now. Whereas I've never set foot in India, um, but my dad did teach me a bit about cooking, just not, it's not natural to me because I can't, I've not been around enough of the culture for me to say, yes, it needs a bit of that spice or whatever. Whereas with Filipino cooking, I know the recipes or I know how to tweak it based on the, the taste. Whereas if you asked me to make a curry, I wouldn't know how to tweak it if it went wrong. <laughs> so that's kind of like, you know, you have a palette that you're able to adjust quite easily. And my natural is from Filipino culture. It's more sort of Eastern Asian type of foods. So, yeah. What I was kind of hearing you say, or, or I guess what I was thinking about there is just, again, this tension of, you being really strongly tuned into your Philippinex identity. And at the same time, it sounds as though at least while you were growing up, and I, I don't know if things feel different to you now, but that there was a stigma associated with that, you know, that type of food, that cuisine. Absolutely. And like you wouldn't, especially with a curry, like you wouldn't rock up to school with a curry and a packed lunch. You packed lunch box. Whereas if, if it were now, I'd be like, oh yeah, uh, you know, you want some? Like, whereas before I would have, I would have hidden it. And I remember once bringing something to lunch when I was at primary school and I can't remember what it was, but feeling quite embarrassed about what the contents of my packed lunch were um, because it wasn't like a sandwich. And then 
I remember after that only bringing sandwiches if I had packed lunch. And it, back then, you know, you could choose quite easily. Like if I wanted to rock up today with a packed lunch, I could. Whereas today you've got to, you've got to say, oh, my child's going to have packed lunch this week. Whereas then, you know, your child could pretty much say, oh, mom, can I have a packed lunch today? And I, yeah, I remember it was either school dinners or I'd make, I'd make mum make me a sandwich rather than bring in any of our home-cooked foods. But now I'd be like, well, you want to try some? Yeah. What do, you, what do your kids do for lunches? Um, they have school lunch just because I can't get my head around the fact that uh, just because they're so affordable that I wouldn't be able to make a cheaper lunch. Right. And there's a convenience there as well as that. <laughs> But they're but, they're not going they're not getting sent with a, a curry to, <laughs> to school right no, now. No, but their school um so we they go to school in quite um it's actually very diverse. We've got a lot of uh we live Wembley has a very large South Asian community. Mm-hmm. Um so for example their food their school doesn't have all of their meat is halal, for example, which I thought was quite um quite cool because we're we're a Muslim family so it just makes that so much easier and also then um because of that they don't serve any pork so that also then means I don't have to watch uh you know I don't need to make sure that that's not what's going to happen at school although to be honest I think it it might (laughs) slip into their food at some point in their lives but um it's just things like that, like their school is well thought out, like they all have, um, if there is a specific week that celebrates a culture or or a festival or something, they will tailor the menu to, so like during Eid, I think they had a more sort of Muslim-based menu, and then they they do things like they will change the menu during Chinese New Year, and other events like they've they've they often send us like emails saying that this is what's gonna this is what's on the menu this week for this cultural event and I think that's really quite nice and forward thinking for a school so they're really um celebrating different cultures through the food that they they have on offer I love that yeah and even on a day-to-day basis like the the week is quite varied so the children they, the kids do tell me that they've had different different experiences, which is quite nice. Yeah. yeah, it's great that they're being exposed to things, which again, sounds very different from your upbringing where you felt like you had to kind of hide yeah, yeah. your cultural foods and, and bring, bring a sandwich in. I want to, again, just as we're thinking about your kids, and I'm, I want to bring it a little bit back to your, your artwork as well. I'm wondering what you hope to teach your children through your depictions of bodies. <laughs> um, I think... In particular- Why do you laugh? Why do you laugh at my question? <laughs> uh, I think it's funny because the kids find it funny, I guess, because when they look at nude, naked bodies kids find it funny don't they like they find bums (laughs) funny and (laughs) that's why I laugh um the bums are funny there's a bum (laughs) 
just sitting on your shoulder. (laughs) There's a bum just perched on your shoulder. Yeah. Um, But do you know what? They've been coming to the studio with me, even my older kids, for so long. And I've never been embarrassed or felt like I've needed to cover up anything in here or change the way that I am when I'm in the studio. They're very aware of my, what my work is about. And they, they even talk about it at school and, you know, they're quite open about it, especially my daughter, that that's what I want to share with them, that there's nothing to be embarrassed about, regardless of what our bodies look like. Um, and uh, my mum didn't explicitly share this with me, but there is a really beautiful moment well moments that that um my mum did share with me like she she wasn't prude but she also was like quite proper like she you know if you were sitting a particular way and your pants were on show she'd be like shut your legs um (laughs) I think that's also like her time that was quite normal um whereas I think that although she was like that in public I learned everything about the way that I feel about my body through my mum so for example the the moment that I I think about the most is my mum would take a long bath on the weekend and it usually was like you know brunchish time like mid-morning and she went on a trip to the Philippines when we were young she found this perfectly round ovalish um stone and it wasn't pumice but it was so smooth and had like a porous texture to it that it was the perfect stone for using as a pumice like to rub your back and get rid of all that dead skin And every time she'd have a long bath, she'd call me, like she'd leave the bathroom door open and she'd call me and say, could you just um, scrub my back? And, you know, like that never felt like an embarrassing moment for her. And she was very open about her body in that short moment of time that I felt very comfortable that her body was normal. And I think although I do it much more explicitly, um, not explicit in the rude sense of the word, but much more openly, yes, that I hope that's the same message my children will understand. And not just for my daughter, but for my sons too, that women's bodies aren't a particular shape or size or height or you know they're so different and I want them to know that that's normal uh, because uh, it, it has to we have to feel that way like I know that I probably won't change it hugely in my lifetime but if I can change it for them then I think that that's a big deal and hopefully that will carry on forward yeah so you're hoping to just put a little kink in that narrative um that 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 women's bodies should look a certain way you're trying to disrupt this idea in your kids and instill this sense that that bodies come 
in all shapes and sizes yeah etc 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 exactly and I already know from dressing my daughter how how it starts from so early on that we're just pushed as a society to to normalize something that isn't true and so the only way I can describe this is my daughter she's much taller for her age and also she still has that roundness of her tummy that you know really young children have um and so it can be really difficult to find trousers for her but just to put this into context she's eight years old and in order to find something that fits her waist I need to go up to like 12 13 sometimes even 14 years old and when I've asked other and this is mostly high street brands and I've tried like you know shopping vintage or but it vintage is worse because it was much worse earlier yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've tried, and and actually, the only thing that seems to work is either hand me downs from the boy, from my from my eldest son, or buying her boys trousers and jeans. Otherwise, she's just in dresses all day long, which suit her fine because she loves dresses. But at the same time, they're not always practical. Sure. But, yeah. <laughs> it's just. I, so when we fought her, the thing that troubles me the most is having been a larger child when I was young up until I was a teenager and always being told that I was overweight and um, that I needed to lose weight and that my clothes should fit better and I would look so much nicer. I have such a pretty face. I would look so much nicer if I was just skinny that I don't want her to feel that because I remember so how damaging that was and how, uh, you know, even when I look back at photos and think that I actually look normal, how I feel I look normal as a kid, how I didn't feel normal. And I can remember specific outfits from photos, how awful I felt in them. Yeah. Um, And how conscious I was aware and how, you know, how conscious I was of, you know, how they didn't fit properly. And I don't want her to feel that, but that's how difficult it is to even find clothes for her that, you know, I just took her on a shopping trip and we tried on so many outfits. We were out for like five, six hours and we bought two pieces of clothing because nothing else fit. Yeah. It, that that's so hard and I think you know as as a parent even if you are normalizing for your child that you know we can size up you know the the age sizes are just like a guide they're not you know they don't tell us anything about our bodies and you yes. know, we can pick the size that fits you they are still going to be on some level because we live in diet culture and a world that is fat phobic that that there is something wrong with their bodies and so it, it's a real it's a real yeah a real struggle if there's a, a kind of a disconnect between the their their chronological age and the age of the, the yes. clothes that they're wearing and you've reminded me and I I can't remember the the name of this company but there is a company in in the UK that are making clothes 
I want to say that are for those exact kids where, <laughs> where they have bodies that don't, you know, some ma match some sort of arbitrary ideal that, you know, you know, was probably based on a pattern from, you know, like, like you were saying, some kid from the 60s or something yeah. that just doesn't reflect how bodies have changed. And also like the diversity in bodies, like the population of the UK is very different now than it was back then. And our bodies have changed and will continue to change. And, and our clothing needs to kind of catch up with that, not vice versa. Mm. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's very upsetting for me, actually, I find it very triggering. And I, I find myself trying to overprotect her from that mm. feeling, because I know that I felt it. And I know how much I hated it. And there's, and sometimes I'll look back at a photo. And I know I mentioned this earlier, but think about how all I was focused on that day. And I think one of the photos, I'm like eight years old, probably, her, you know, her age now, and how I can't remember past that day what I did, except for the fact that I hated what I was wearing because it didn't fit me. Um, and I never want her, I know that that's unrealistic for me to say, but I don't want that. And if it's not for her, then, we need to fix it so that it's not for generations to come yeah. and I just yeah. it, it dumbfounds me that we haven't fixed it already yeah I know it's I've, I've got similar memories of my my own childhood of you know being told that oh well this skirt doesn't fit you remember a school uniform once and the skirt was kind of, you know, when a skirt is too small for you, it comes up at the back. It kind of looks shorter at the back, and it's like really weird. But I remember that being my fault. Yeah. The fault of the skirt. And I'm like, now I think we have the language and the, the understanding a bit more. And not everyone is, is you know, versed in this, but we we have the tools more so to be able to point to the systems absolutely that are the problem yes you know versus the in individual and we can externalize that shame we can externalize that blame rather than holding on so tightly to it as probably you and I did yeah growing up for for children regardless of their gender you know they all need to to learn that lesson that their bodies are not the the problem yes absolutely but it's tough. It's so hard. And it's just one, it's just one more thing that as parents that we have to kind of wrestle with and have to figure out how, how we're going to approach it. And mm -hmm. parenting's hard enough as it is. I just wish we <laughs> Yeah. I mean, my like... friend was messaging me the other day and was like, Oh, I'm worried that my, my daughter is going to get bullied about X, Y, and Z. And her daughter is the same age as mine. <laughs> <laughs> there too and I'm like oh god we have to worry about bullying and yeah and I think also something that's bothering me really recently is how much we gender young young children like that should be the age where they're growing up is nothing to do with gender and 
you know, I've tried to raise my children in quite a gender neutral environment because it shouldn't dictate how we go and reach for things in life. And yes, obviously we are going to come up with challenges like all of the things that we detailed in motherhood and how women have such a disproportionate sort of treatment and experience of motherhood, but uh, of parenthood. But I feel like this is the age where they need to be able to experience everything regardless of who they are. Like, you know, they should be able to do whatever they want and experience it without having to experience it through gender. But for example, my youngest is two and he has long, long, long hair. It's almost down to his bottom. Wow. One is like, oh, look at that pretty girl. Oh, she shouldn't be like climbing up like that or she's going to hurt her legs or I'm just like, he's a, it doesn't matter that he's a boy or a girl. Just because he's got long hair doesn't mean that long hair automatically means girl. And also, why can't boys have long hair? And also, why does it matter what he's doing? If he was a girl and he wanted to climb up Mount Everest, or obviously not not at two years old, but why does it matter? I am, you know, hard agree. I am, I'm right there with you with a kid that I am doing my best to you know, not put into any particular box, but that the world around me is, uh, you know, determined to to put into box. And yeah, I, it's the it's the constant kind of, I guess that question that you were kind of coming up against before is is wondering, you know, how much overcorrecting do you do? Like yeah. you were saying with the the body image piece, versus giving them all the tools. And then trusting them. <laughs> no, you're right. They've got it. Like, I, I mean, you've been a parent for longer than I have. So you tell <laughs> me if you know a better way. But like, this is, this is where I'm at with it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the gender thing affects me the most because it's more like, I think, especially when it comes down to boy means strong and therefore your body is stronger and can deal with more things. And that's what I have a problem with because especially like with the way that I've had to go after my career, I think that shows, I'm not trying to blow my own horn here, but I've worked so hard physically and mentally. And I think that shows great strength as well as raising my kids during the same time to nourish both of us, you know, so that I can do what I want. I've always dreamed I've wanted to do and also hopefully show them that they can dream for whatever they want. That, I think we really need to re-question what we deem as strength and why it's so appropriate that people are so strong and not vulnerable um, and why vulnerability is a weakness. And I, I hope that showing, I think my recent mural in Wembley was something that I will always really be so passionate about in that my mural shows softness and femininity of the female form but it's stuck in the most stark concrete jungle which is traditionally home to football and I think 
that is that's a win for me and i hope it's a little bit of a win for that message that the two are so connected that we need to start allowing those boundaries to blur and to become one yeah yeah i think anytime we're stuck in binaries that's when we we run into big problems yeah and that mural is so gorgeous i hope i can get (laughs) down there and see it at some point in real life but i'm gonna link to it in the in the show notes so that people can see the the video that you've made of it because it really is so impressive and I'm so like yeah it just makes me so happy that that's just like out there in the world for people to stumble across and and see because again those forms and figures and that softness and that vulnerability is usually hidden away so like it being right there in your face is so exciting to me yeah and I think it was incredible I felt it, in, it even more poignant even though it didn't relate directly but this year with the women's euro I felt it's oh, the yeah. first time that I've actually felt that there was light shone on women's football and I'm not I'm, I don't follow football but I felt really proud of the fact that they you know, one, that they won, and two, <laughs> that they were actually being shouted about. And yeah. to also have recently painted a mural where they won that game. Yeah. And to celebrate women's football felt really, really cool. Okay, well, I'm from Scotland, so I can't comment on any of this. <laughs> <laughs> but I hear exactly what you're saying. So Lakshmi, at the end of every episode, my guests and I share something that they've been snacking on, um, which can be a book, it can be a movie, a podcast, it can be a literal snack, it can be anything you you want. Um, so what do you have for us? Well, I was thinking about this and originally I was going to um, talk about the fact that I'm feeling like enjoying the summer and regenerating my energy. But actually, a couple of days ago, I picked up a book on my trip um, to Ramsgate from a really good friend who's just opened a bookshop there. And it's called Eleanor Knows. And it's a translation. um, She lives, I want to say Buenos Aires, but um, I can't remember now. But it's a really beautiful, I've already... I'm already like seven chapters in but um it's about a woman and it relates to me because my dad's got Parkinson's um and it's about an older woman um who's got Parkinson's and she's talking about a daughter that she's just lost um and I haven't really got right into the story but what was really interesting to me is how much she's described about her every day Um, and how Parkinson's affects her. And it's been really interesting because my dad hasn't talked about how his Parkinson's affects him at all. And I know it sounds like a bit of a downer, but I really love learning about things, especially when it comes to, you know, how people can feel. And And because I'm my dad's main carer, I think that it will really impact how I then relay 
and care back to him. And I think it's important that we learn, we still learn hard things because they're, they're how we then address and adapt and, you know, hopefully grow from them or, you know, move, not necessarily move past them because, you know, especially when it comes to things like grief, you don't move past it, but you, the essential thing that you need to learn is how to live with it. That's the thing that I've been learning for the last four years since I lost my mom is how to live with her not in this world because that's the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. And knowing that now my dad is going to not be here soon, how I can make the last part of his life, you know, how I can be the best person to him and knowing more about Parkinson's in that way, I think makes me feel like I understand more about what I'm going through and hopefully I can be a better daughter because <laughs> you know caring is challenging but um yeah, yeah. Mm, that's that's so beautiful and I'll link to the book and also if you can send me your friend's bookshop I can yes. also link to the bookshop as well um it sounds it sounds really like a painful but also beautiful and insightful read um so yeah thank you for sharing that my thing feels a bit like inconsequential <laughs> but no, I was gonna... <laughs> um so I have been taking a break from Instagram like I completely deleted it off my phone my husband and I are taking time off um the last week and this week um, apart from recording this podcast, obviously, and, um, and just not having Instagram on my phone, like I've been reading a lot more. I've, um, but like more than that, my brain has just had a lot more space to breathe. And, and I think kind oh, of yeah. in the same way that you talked about having that like summer reset to kind of help propel you forward creatively like I'm kind of seeing it that way as well that I just need to like but I think that's really important because I know you said it sounds inconsequential but Instagram and social media in particular keeps us engaged all the time and we need to step back from that it's so healthy to step back from that but there is no message that it's healthy to do that and I think that's really important as well Mm. Lakshmi tell everyone before we go where they can find out more about you and your work um my website is this Lakshmi so l-a-k-s-h-m-i this Lakshmi at uh, dot com and on instagram at this Lakshmi thank you so much this has been such a great conversation I'm so glad to talk to you Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Can I Have Another Snack? If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review in your podcast player and head over to laurathomas.substack.com for the full transcript of this conversation, plus links we discussed in the episode and how you can find out more about this week's guest. While you're over there, consider signing up for either a free or paid subscription to the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter where I'm exploring topics around bodies, identity and appetite, especially as it relates to parenting. 
Also, it's totally cool if you're not a parent. You're welcome too. We're building a really awesome community of cool, creative and smart people who are committed to ending the tyranny of body shame and intergenerational transmission of disordered eating. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas, edited by Julie Kelly. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Pracer and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. And lastly, Fiona Bray keeps me on track and makes sure this episode gets out every week. This episode wouldn't be possible without your support. So thank you for being here and valuing my work and I'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.